course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And the Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Whoa! <laughs> Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. The following program is produced with a near-to-well lackadaisical attitude by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man right there, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact-checker. And on the phone, one of the most dynamic, progressive, intelligent, and award-winning journalists and true crime authors in the history of the universe. And that's a long history. Yeah, and he's handsome, too, and he's got a nice mustache. Thank you. Thank you for having me on yet again. Yes, well, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I was reading your biography here, and I was just so upset <laughs> to read of all of your accomplishments. It made me feel like my life is wasted. But, you were uh, a radio discount. Yeah. yeah, but this guy was, I mean, I'm a journalist. He's a journalist. Wouldn't you like to be a journalist, too? Howard Lapidus, former co-host and now overlooking the program for the great beyond. It's an anniversary. He passed away a year ago to, uh, yesterday. And uh, we often think of him because we think the show's haunted by him. <laughs> That's one reason. He also is a journalist. There's very, you know... Yes, yeah, there are very few real journalists getting any play these days. I, I always hope that with the Internet having more access to information, it didn't occur to me that it would be great for accessing incredible amounts of misinformation and it breaks the hearts of journalists everywhere including yours I would imagine yes yeah there's, uh, there's a lot to, a lot to sift through out there these days and, and no one to do the, the pre-sifting yeah that's why I have Mark C.G. Boyer our fact checker here he knows more about your life than you do so if you get something wrong he'll correct you correct right. good <laughs> we, we figure fact checkers are important uh, <laughs> or as Ronald Reagan said, facts are pesky things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're shifty. Yeah, very shifty. So t tell tell the audience uh, briefly, without bragging too much, how wonderful you are and your your background. Uh, briefly? How do I do that? Um, let's see. Well, <laughs> it's almost uh, impossible. <laughs> yeah, it, is. it is. I mean, uh, just getting through the resume could take the rest of the show. Um, but, uh, well, let's see, I, like you said, I was a journalist and worked in newspapers for the most part for about uh, 20-some-odd years, uh, pretty much uh, lots of different places in the world and in the States, and uh, everything from Indiana to D.C. to Florida to Oregon to Colorado. Um, so I did that for quite a number of years, and... Uh, and I think my first book, Monster, um, came out in 97, and uh, I started writing uh, books only, not not newspapers anymore, as of 2000, I believe. Yeah. So I've just been uh, trying to make a make a living that way, such as it is. And yeah. um, for the it's, it's not easy years. anymore. You know, the amazing uh, thing it's is it's they never have been easy, but it's yeah, it's it's um, different. I think it's uh, pretty amazing that the, the old line of publishers that we're all familiar with uh, used to pay a lot of money <laughs> back in the old days when the earth was young and steam was rising from the surface of the planet. But they don't do that anymore. 
It wised up, I guess. No. Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot to draw from. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, free and self-published and everything else material out there. And um, so, you know, and everybody's competing on the same field, whether whether you um, know what you're doing or you don't know what you're doing. But it's, uh, it is tough to get above the white noise these days. Well, I'll tell you, the uh, you started uh, Wild Blue Press, which we've always been very impressed with here, and, uh, and your brilliant authors, among them being me. <laughs> we <don't>, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we always got to get those in there. Burl Plug, Burl Plug. But, but we get a lot of your your authors on the show, and they're always a delight because you got some really good books. And you started off with Wild Blue doing uh, true crime and some mystery fiction, but you've expanded, have you not? Yeah, we've, uh, I mean, we got into, like you said, mysteries and thrillers, um, but we've done a number of uh, military books, mostly memoir, um, sort of uh, uh, guys who were uh, serving in Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, a couple of those were actually almost too crime-ish. They were uh, about uh, soldiers who had been charged with crimes, uh, you know, usually kind of a political thing. Uh, and we've got some business uh, books going, and we've even dabbled a little bit in science fiction and fantasy. So yeah, we're kind of a little bit all over the board. We're uh, looking to expand more into science fiction and fantasy, possibly even romance. You know, what a, a romantic I am. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, you have quite I'm a sure reputation can... for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> well don't believe everything you, you hear. And especially don't believe the newspapers or the uh, the court reports. No, I, I I pass up on those of the trial transcripts as well. Mark, go ahead. So, uh, why don't you tell us about All Secure, which you uh, you mentioned? Uh, well, All Secure is a, a book I did with uh, uh, Command Master Sergeant uh, Tom Satterley, um, who is uh, was a member of uh, Delta Force, the unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and which makes him one of our best of our very best. Um, and it's uh, it's an interesting book. It was a very tough uh, emotionally, psychologically, uh, a book to do. Um, I have some involvement in uh, you know going back uh, to Vietnam days and that sort of thing. So I'm close to a lot of special forces type guys. And Tom was the first uh, unit guy I had met, and. What brought us together, what made was the interest in the story, weren't just his, his war stories. I mean, he was in Mogadishu, you know, he's part of Black Hawk Down. He's uh, portrayed by, I forget which one it was, uh, portrayed him in it. But um, anyway, uh, and he's uh, been all over the world and done a million things. Some of them he wouldn't uh, be able to tell us without killing us. Yeah. Um, but, um, but he's done a, a, an amazing amount of work and an amazing amount of putting himself on the line and not just uh, not just your terrorists but your drug cartel type people and things like that but anyway uh, Tom um, many many tours of duty and uh, but what the book's about isn't just his war stories but the difficulties of coming home um, in, uh, in PTS and uh, oh, yeah. traumatic brain injury uh, type things and and uh, he figured that if someone in his with his status, and I mean, yeah, you can talk to a lot of people in uh, the military and outside the military, and they'll tell you that uh, Tom Satterley at one point was um, the best of our very best. You know, and this is a guy who is so tough. You know, you can roller skate on him and not leave a mark, and um, 
you know, just a, a very, uh, but he figured if he can talk about the problems he had and if he can talk about breaking down and needing to cry and if he can talk about the ruined marriages and the, uh, the over-drinking and the compensating and trying to get by at that, he can do something about uh, the epidemic of suicides among our combat veterans coming back. And then um, he has a... a Foundation called the All Secure Foundation, and I would uh, strongly advise people to um, look it up and contribute to it because it does a lot for um, not just the guys coming back, but you know that their families have to put up oh, with yeah, this. You know, they put up with the guy who is uh, trying to even figure out uh, how to be human again in the real world. Mm -hmm. And so they suffer as well, and that's why the high incident of divorces and, Hell, yeah. and abuse and things like that. Yeah, I had a newsman at uh, KOL Radio, Ken Matler, and uh, he came back uh, from Vietnam, and it was never quite the same, and uh, dealing with things that he had done over there, which... He cornered me one night for several hours where I was just the shoulder for him to uh, lean on and talk to. And the things that uh, he had done that seemed okay at the time, and in retrospect weren't, <laughs> uh, just bore on him tremendously over the years to the point where he finally took his own life. And that, that's the kind yeah. of thing I don't like to see happen or whatsoever. Is that your fault? It's tough, and it's not always about, like, what they've done or whatever. I mean, war is, war is hell, and it's going to be in war. It's going to be nasty and ugly. But this, these wars that we're putting our guys, especially our top guys, through um, these days, it's day after day after day of multiple missions. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and they're finding out that, in fact, we don't call, call it PTSD. We've removed the D, and so do a lot of mental health officials these days because D is the, the disorder. The, it makes it sound like it's all mental or psychological and it's not. A lot of it's physiological cortisol, um, you know, uh, uh, over amounts of cortisol and adrenaline and, and doing this and doing this day after day after day night times because mostly they operate at night um, can just throw you off physically as well as psychologically. So it's, it's a kind of a combination of everything that have to be dealt with. There was a fellow that I, I spent some time talking with in uh, Seattle last year uh, who was involved in the uh, experiments in treating PTSD where he was given doses of MDMA. Uh, and I said, how did that work for you? He said, it totally eliminated all of his symptoms for six months. I said, well, when the six months was up, did they give you more? He goes, nope, the study was over. <laughs> and, <Yeah. that's> <laughs> and so they didn't give me any more. We do not have a very good, uh, like many things with our country right now, we do not have much focus on anything. You know, we're, we're like a bunch of five-year-olds running around and um, we, we can't carry anything out to completion. We don't uh, stay focused. We don't stay on task. We, you know, we run these little experiments and things like that. And, uh, and um, you know, makes it uh, difficult to uh, to actually accomplish anything because when they do find something that works and the funding runs out or everybody loses interest or now we're we're worried about uh, you know whether the election is going to be postponed or, or whatever, so we lose track of, of what's what's necessary. Yeah, it's like welcome to short attention span theater. 
You know? Did yeah, you, uh, yeah, that's it. Did you see the movie The Hurt Locker? Yes. And, um, yeah, he, a uh, bomb tech uh, in the Middle East um, right. <clears throat> basically is disarming these uh, IUDs and uh, devices, whatever they are. And he's doing it, and he's loving it. And when he comes home, he can't, he can't not live without the rush. Right. That must and be he, that and, adrenaline you know, overdose. Yeah, so he re-enlists to go through it all over again. Right. And a lot of these guys, you'll find that a lot of these guys, uh, special forces guys, especially, especially who are, uh, um, you know, overseas and do these sorts of things, when they come back, they're risk takers. You know, they drive fast, they, they get into uh, skydiving or bat wings, they, you know, they're rock climbers. And some of it, that's, you know, some of it's healthy channeling, some of it's not healthy channeling. Yeah, especially if they're driving fast over a cliff. It's not right. Idea. You know, sometimes they get real risk takers. It gets beyond the beyond. Uh, the VA does have some uh, some programs to help. Yeah, it's some guys, but it's not quite as extensive as we'd like. It all, all as you say, it depends a lot on their funding and how much. Uh, right. I uh, I had yeah, a. Th- and that's the problem. Is there, there are programs and some places, that, but it's all hit and miss. You know, there's there's no national program to, you know, let's see, here's the problem, how are we going to deal with it, here's our 12-step program or whatever we're going to do, and everybody gets run through it or, or whatever else it's, you know. And it's a lot of it depends on the, the veteran coming in and seeking help, and but part of, part of having a... Uh, an issue, a psychological issue, is that you don't think you need help. Yeah, you know, so it's you know, very, it's very it. rare. In fact, uh, by by, I was years ago. I participated, strangely enough, in a medical experiment, uh, UCLA, and uh, they were giving me. I won't go into all the details. They were giving me a medication that, in time, made me more nuts than I already am. And I called my doctor up at about ten o'clock in the morning. And I told him, I said, listen, uh, here are all the symptoms I'm having. There's something really wrong here with what this medication has done to me. And he goes, it sounds like Mr. Spock on Star Trek. He goes, Mr. Bear, it's highly unusual for a man to admit to his doctor that he's having psychological problems due to his medication. Uh, Most men won't mention that. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, thanks. I said, well, well, I did mention it. What are we going to do about it? Said, Stop taking it. Said, okay. I probably wanted to do a study on you to figure out why you were the one that would mention it. Yeah. They well, did. No, As they a matter of fact, they did. When he was in a baby. They did that. Uh, they, they did a, a uh, we call it like a, an afterwards test, you know, psychological test, difference between now and then. And... It was very strange. They'd never seen one like it before. I scored abnormally high on the uh, risk-taking, uh, macho, drive too fast, uh, do this, do that. Type A personality. Yeah, and same t- simultaneously, I was mother of the year. I was nurturing empathetic. <laughs> too high. I was off the chart on both simultaneously. This is why I call you imaginary. That's why I'm the imaginary Burl Bear. I had a... I had a cousin who uh, lived Full Metal Jacket from the, the boot camp there through the Tet Offensive. Um, he returned uh, and was able to uh, re-enter. He, he didn't have the stress of the combat, 
but he did have a spinal injury that left him in intractable pain for most of his, the rest of his life. Uh, until a final attempt by the VA to help him, he died on the table. Oh, well, that's a cheerful story. Moving no, right along. But that, you know, <laughs> a lot of these stories of our returning veterans is pretty bad. Yeah, it's a sense. Well, and it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not everybody is affected the same way. And, and some people can either hide it if they have it or they don't even have it. Um, it's, you know, and that's what people don't understand. It's like, oh, you were in combat and therefore you must have PTSD or PTS. And, but not all of them do. Some of them may, uh, you know, be able to reintegrate and push that aside and put it, uh, put it back. But, um, that's not who we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, helping the guys who, um, for one reason, some of it's chemical, some of it's the way they're wired. Yeah. Um, and then some of them have just uh, had to do far too much for a young man to have to, um, you know, to deal with. Yeah. Uh, deal with. Yeah. Well, you get on the happier side of your life. You have been to some pretty damn exciting places in the world. It's not like you were just stuck in the States. You know, you've traveled the world. Yeah, next year you're going someplace different. <laughs> but <laughs> where where all have you been? What Malaysia, Micronesia, Russia? And you got those. Uh, let's see, Thailand, Cambodia. Um, I mean, these are those were back in the day. Um, it wasn't that long you know, ago I mean, that you went up to like Anastasia. Japan. I mean, you name it. And I, I've been there. A lot of those things in Europe, uh, places in Europe, Russia, quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. My, I've been lucky. You sure lucky and unlucky. Why don't, you tell us about, uh, have, why don't you tell us about the cadaver hunters and finding Anastasia? Yes. Yes, you did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we actually, this year, we were supposed to go back for, our, I think, our eighth or ninth time. Uh, we're actually looking for uh, the Grand Duke Mikhail Romanov. The uh, rest of the family has been found at this time. Uh, the last two, Anastasia or Maria, there's some argument on which is who it was, which one it was, um, and Alexia, the Crown Prince. Um, they were found in 2008 by this group. Um, and uh, so now we're looking for the Grand Duke Mikhail Romanov. Uh, about a month before the czar and everybody else, he was uh, kidnapped from his hotel by the Bolsheviks and taken out in the forest and shot and gone with his secretary and put in the clandestine grave. So we've been trying to find that uh, based on diaries and um, reports and confessions and stuff like that. And been doing that for about eight years, but it's uh, Russia is a large place and there's yeah. a lot of problems in Russia. Yeah. Um, so we were going to go back this year, but of course uh, the epidemic has kind of squa- squashed that. In fact, uh, our main Russian counterpart, legal counterpart, uh, law enforcement guy, he got COVID. Um, he just he's recovered now, but um, yeah. So I mean. You know, and, uh, where we were supposed to go was going to be a hot spot, so nobody was interested in uh, doing no, that. And it just ended up shutting down the borders anyway, so we couldn't do it. It kind of puts everything on hold. I was really impressed as you came to mind. The reason I bugged you about coming on the show today is I read uh, what you posted on uh, True Crime Discussions on Facebook uh, about No Angels, which is uh, a book of yours that I guess has been resurrected. 
Yeah, it actually, it was a series of stories I had done um, over the course of about uh, two years, uh, I guess, from the time of the uh, murder of this young woman, Brandy Duvall, and actually probably before that because uh, uh, this whole thing was then started with the murder of this uh, girl, Venus Montoya, who was just sort of hanging out in the wrong place when some gang members decided they were going to spray it down with... Um, some AR-15s and they were looking for somebody else and she just happened to be in the line of fire so probably for two years over the course of two years I wrote a long series of stories um, about these the, the investigation the arrest the um, uh, the trials or four murder trials a couple of sexual assault trials two death penalty hearings throughout all of this and um, it was a real different story for me because it was, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I noticed the, this uh, woman who was attending all the hearings and trials. I knew who the mother of the victims were, mothers were, and their families, but I saw this woman and she kept, she was there and kind of kept to herself and quietly and finally told she was the uh, mother of one of the main defendants, one of the guys who was going to be on uh, up for possibility of a death penalty. Hmm. And so I started, uh, I asked if I could talk to her, and, and uh, we just got to this, uh, this thing of, you know, I noticed how alone she was, you know, the other, everybody else had counselors and that sort of stuff, and um, yet she's sort of a pariah, you know, was afraid to approach anybody or talk to anybody or ask for any help or, or something because her son had done this horrible thing. So she, while she was trying to support her son as a mother, um, she also knew that this was this horrible thing and couldn't forgive him for it. But uh, you know, there's. So I, I just said, let's you know, let's tell us and tell a story about everybody who's involved here. It's the ripple effect of violent crime, as I have referred to it before, and um, you know, and and how how it takes people who are you know, by any other account, are, are fairly innocent. Now, this woman doesn't hold herself as innocent because she, um, you know, is a, wasn't a great role model for her kids when they're growing up and and made some mistakes of her own, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's still, she wasn't the well, person there. It's still going to be heartbreaking uh, if your kid is doing that, you know, it's got to tear her Yeah, up. well, and yeah, that's because you don't remember your kid as this monster who, um, did this horrible thing. You remember him as a, a five-year-old at Christmas time, you yeah. know, and opening his presents, and you know, uh, and you know the things he did as a, as a loving child, or or anything else like that. You know, the m monsters are rarely you know turned out at four or five years old. Yeah. Um, you know, to what they'll be, if, you know, twenty years later or whatever. Yeah, I always think of that when uh, these horrible people, that once upon a time, that was somebody's little kid. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. I mean, you get a couple of them that you find out he, he was just wired, wired weird from the beginning, but for the most part, you know, it's, um, it's something that happens. It's, uh, I mean, their wiring or their environment or the things that were mistakes or, you know, just a, a compilation of many different things and... Um, suddenly, you know, uh, they, uh, they commit, um, 
some evil deed and uh, you know they're, they're suddenly monsters and we see them that way and I have no uh, compunctions about or empathy for, for them very much um, but at the same time it, it's kind of a good lesson for all of us for society if you'd like to stop this that you know there are things that can be done to intercede before um, this is a, a story about gang members and so you know, there are things that can be done before gangs turn to this sort of, uh, you know, cycle. They're starting to go down the drain. Yeah, and talk a lot about uh, what, what's termed social capital. Uh, just like we have financial capital, like how much money you got. Social capital is what friends do you have that have got your back? Who can you turn to and talk to when you need someone to talk to? Uh, what kind of support right. supports do you have within the family or your friends? And the less of that you have, the greater your chances you're going to be pretty screwed up. Or turn to something else. Turn to, you know, I mean, gangs, if you talk to gangs much, you know, they'll say, why are you in this? And why are you so dedicated to them? Why are you willing to, you know, basically screw up your whole life? And they'll say, well, they're my family. I didn't have family. Mm-hmm. You know, I had, a, you know, I had a dad in prison. I had a mom on drugs. I had... You know, all these other sorts of things. So basically, the only people I could count on were these guys who promised to take good care of me, and they did. They, you know, they protected me. They they gave me money. They bought me clothes. They, you know, so the, the law of gangs is not as simple as, oh, this is a bad kid, and he turned to gangs so he could do some bad deeds. Um, you know, not to most of them. Most of them, it's a, you know, it's a search for somebody and some sort of support who, who fills in that family gap. And if, uh, you know, that family gap is filled in by uh, antisocial and, uh, you know, people, uh, and then that's what you're going to get out of it. It's, that's who, you, who you're developing. I remember we were talking to Andrew DiDonato, who was in the Gambino crime family, and he was supposed to have his back on everything. And he said, that's a myth. <laughs> he says, it's just not like that. They were really there for him. He was, he was shocked to find out. Oh, yeah, yeah. They'll, 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 they'll step in those. those that's not a street gang so much, but, you know, yeah, that, that uh, honor among thieves lasts until somebody gets charged with something and, you know, wants out of it. Um, and, and, and in this case, it was, uh, you know, one of the main people involved. He, he participated in the killing of both, both girls, and yet he was the first one to turn, so he got the best deal out of everything. Well, that reminds me of the case where the prosecutor said, the first one through the door gets the deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, is, which isn't quite ethical. And uh, well, Yeah, but that's, that's how it's done. He's like, the uh, first one we can turn, and then... Uh, that sort of stuff, and you know, and then they try to come up with some reasoning why this guy is, you know, um, deserves the deal more than the other guys did. And they, you know, and I, I had a lot of respect for these prosecutors. That's not that wasn't the issue, but but it is still how the game is played. Is you know, um, and when you're dealing with the street gang, where you do have some of them who won't turn on each other. Um, you know, they are sticking with their 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 code, such as it is. But you have one of them who won't, then you know, the others are basically going to uh, get the shot while that, that guy figures out, you know, get, getting a better deal. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, that whole ripple effect of it's never, it's never isolated. It's never just that person and what they face, whether going to jail or not going to prison or whatever the hell the deal is. 
But it does. I mean, the families of the victims, the family of the perpetrators, it just, the devastation just keeps going on and on and on and on and, on and affecting so many people. And, you know, they have the police officers, the, um, you know, the prosecutors who, you know, for two two years, uh, how many trials have there? Plus the death penalty hearings. I mean, that's, that's, you know, going over the notes and rereading the autopsy reports and seeing the photographs and having to put the mom of a victim up on the witness stand and ask her again, what was it like to identify your child in the morgue? And, um, you know, they, they, I know for a fact that a, um, a couple of them still suffer from, you know, nightmares and, um, and just, you know, their own version of PTS. Right. Um, from just having to, to... So there's a lot of people who get put through it, um, you know, without... Uh, um, yeah. That you wouldn't think of. You know, everybody thinks, of course, of the victim and the actual perpetrator there and maybe thinks of the victim's family and friends, but um, we don't get much farther than that. Reminds me when... Uh I first uh, did uh, another pearl plug here, Murder of the Family, <laughs> which is available. Only one half hour, generally, and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> but before I did that one, uh, I was at uh, the World Mystery Convention, Bouchicon, and Gary C. King was there. And I told him what uh, book I was just about to start in on, which is the horrible story about Kirby Anthony. And he said, be prepared to cry a lot. Uh, he says, be prepared to be haunted by the story, when you you know get into all the details, if you're not used to doing this, it's going to be rough. And boy, he was right, because you had uh, this mother murdered and your two little girls, and I kept there. Well, yeah, and and I mean, in the close, the better you are at this, um, as far as doing these stories. I mean, they're the guys who basically, uh, you know, open up Wikipedia and do, Google some the news stories or or something like that, and basically they're just looking for the the gore and the, yeah. the blood and how terrible this stuff was but if you're any good at this and you're interviewing and you're talking to sometimes on a daily basis the, you know the victims families are like in this case this um, this mother of one of the defendants and, and some of them and actually the brother of one of the defendants who you know for the grace of God he walked away from the gang that night just before everything went down decided he'd finally had enough so you know and if you're doing that and you're trying to ferret out the real stories and the narrative here and it's like why and how does something like this happen um, then you are you're investing some of your own uh, psychological capital um, into this. I, I actually stopped doing uh, true crime after the stories. It was two years worth of stories, and um, I'd stopped writing true crime for probably maybe close to two years. Um, I just uh, had had it. I'd had enough uh, mothers crying on witness stands and. Um, people and ruined lives and just uh, you know the horror of, of all of this and and I uh, said I just I just don't need to do this anymore so I walked away for quite a bit um, and then putting it together is, that was interesting because I'd actually had been thinking about this story oh probably six months ago or this series of stories and, and then I had a couple of people who were involved in it uh, peripherally for the most part um, friends of witnesses or friends of 
this or that. And there's and whatever ever happened to those stories, you got to put them out of the book. Um, so what I did is I took those stories and I re revised them and um, uh, changed or not, didn't change, but uh, it made it book form as opposed to a, a long series of I think there were twelve. Uh, long magazine sort of pieces, each covering a different file or a different part of it, and so I wove it all together so that people can see the, you know, by reading it in a book, then you get the full impact of of this two years worth of, um, you know. You know what? Always uh, just digressing just a little bit here. I'm sure you've got this, where people will say, "Boy, you're a horrible person," because you're making money off of these other people's misery. People don't usually say that to newspaper reporters or TV reporters who cover the same story. Uh, Even though they're being paid to. Yeah. yeah. But if we if we well, devote yeah, a year of our lives to the story... They don't say it to war correspondents. And they don't say it war. People write about war. They don't say it to, you know... The, and, and it's and it, that's fine if you if that's how you want to believe. I mean, there's a little money in true crime anyway. It's kind yeah. of like, okay, you... Yeah, we're it. getting rich that. off of their pain, you betcha. <laughs> no, right. the, the way to go it's is... like, okay, I'm, I'm telling a story. It's a non-fiction story. I put a lot of time and effort and my own self um, and whatever skill I may have into telling this story. And I don't pick in most good true crime writers or memoir writers of any sort don't pick stories just to, for the hell of them. I'm looking for stories that have a message or, uh, you know, can say something to the hu about the human condition. And it may be a story that's about the murder of a 14-year-old girl, but really it's a story about what happens when you don't uh, intercede and stop these gangs and what happens if there's, um, you know, even what's ha what happens if you think it's okay to let your 14-year-old girl wander around the streets and, of Denver at midnight, um, which, you know, obviously haunts that one or haunted, she's passed on, um, Brandy's mom, the murder girl's mom. And, or, or, or even just... Uh, you know, this, this is how callous some of us have got. This sort of a brutal murder, um, and what they did to this this child. And um, you know, it's 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 news. It's 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 talking about our world. It's not a pleasant part of our world, but neither is a lot of things. I mean, people make money talking about politics. You know, like I would argue that you probably learn less talking about politics than you do talking about crime. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, what, whatever, people are allowed to believe what they want to believe, um, you know, the, but uh, I, don't, I don't see it that way, obviously. Yeah, uh, neither do I. That's interesting is that uh, I wanted to interview uh, Rhonda Glover of uh, Book Fatal Beauty in Prison uh, because I was doing this book, and they said, well, no, you can't go in as an author to interview her. You have to just go in as a, a regular visitor. Uh, if you were writing a blog, however, we'd give you permission, but not authors. Because I mean, that just amazed me that, uh, you know, that someone who's just doing a blog could interview them, but not someone doing a full-length book. But, uh, well, they all have their silly rules, and some of it is based on nothing more than a subjective, um, you know, the, the same sort of thing where you're just... Uh, um, you know, I don't like books about criminals, or I don't want to see uh, anything about this. And 
or I'm going to protect, I'm going to protect the, the victims on this way. But, you know, I've, I've generally found very few, especially in law enforcement or, or others, who now they may say, hey, you know, I'll, um, I'll talk to the person for you and see if they want to talk to you, which is the uh, usual approach uh, that I use so that people don't feel obligated and that sort of thing. But a lot of them, um, you know, they want the story told. They, they, and and there's, there's also that, is that I think people, because I always, you know, I, all of my books, while you can't say they're happy endings because, you know, they're based on the premise of somebody dying and uh, that sort of stuff, I'm, I'm also, look, I look for books where justice prevails in the end. And I think people need to hear that, too, because, you know, our world, it sounds it seems like more and more justice doesn't prevail. Justice, you know, is kind of left there. You have all these horrible cops and horrible cop stories, and, and yet so you don't hear about some of these, uh, the good cops and the, the cops like in my book, Bogeyman, who, well, 20 years bringing a child killer to, you know, yeah. prison and uh, what that did psychologically to them. You know, one guy ends up on the street and commits suicide and others had their lives ruined. And, and so people need to hear um, this rounded version of, you know, there are good, um, and many of them, good, good cops and that the world isn't just going to hell in a handbasket that sometimes justice does prevail and the bad guys do get caught and you know you don't um you know you you we don't have to live in fear we can live you know with the, the idea of that uh, you know monsters do get put in prison i wonder if people who read a lot of true crime think the world is even scarier than it really is I think there are a couple of different kinds. I mean, there are a number of different types of true crime readers. There are some who just get, you know, want that titillation of, you know, scaring themselves or reading late at night and, you know, they hear a scratching on the window. Oh, yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think uh, for the most part, I would say that, Oh, uh, I hate to give a percentage, but a huge percentage of them are, and it's particularly female readers, right. are into the psychology of it. It's what makes a guy like this tick. Yeah. Um, how could somebody do this horrible crime? Um, uh, what should people watch out for? What should, and so I find that the vast majority of my readers anyway, if I poll them, talk about, uh, you know, hey, I, I want to know how a guy like this can do that. And, right. And, you know, what's the sociology behind it or the psychology behind it? And, um, so there's, a, you know, there's that, there's that scientific approach. And, and some people just, you know, I mean, true crime is our, is our oldest storytelling, you know, Cain and Abel and, yeah. um, you know, uh, Beowulf, you know, basically is a story about a killer and guy goes and gets him. Um, you know, there's, true crime has been with us forever and we, you know, when we've been telling it around the fires in our caves and stuff, it's the story of this, this horrible um, killer or whatever it was and the hero rises up and, you know, he may have to overcome some uh, terrible obstacles and that sort of stuff, but in the end, justice prevails. We we need those stories. They, they've been with us as long as any stories we have. Yeah, well, as the, uh, the great true crime writer Jack Olson said, is it any true crime book that doesn't get into those things you just mentioned? 
It's just pornography. If all of this is the blood and the gore and who killed who with what. At, uh, yep. So, uh, yeah, there are, there are enough of those. Uh, I mean, a lot of them are self-published, and some of them are published by other publishers who uh, will go nameless, but I think we all know who they are. Is basically is, uh, you know, glean what you can from the newspapers, talk to a couple of people to get some blood and gore um, quotes, and that's kind of the end of their their storytelling. There's, there's nothing... There's nothing there. There's no there there. Um, there's no substance to them. Quickly forgotten, um, you know, other than for the horror or, or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I think the, you know, the Jack Olsons of the, of the world and stuff, they get remembered because there was some something else to their books, something, some other substance to them. Yeah, well, hopefully the same will be said about us when we're gone. And with me, there could be any minutes. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll see if anybody remembers anything. <laughs> uh, Burhu? Burhu, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it started with a B. started with a B. I know it started with a B. Yeah. Yeah. Something, uh, uh, um, was it a Burl Squirrel? <laughs> so, uh, so what was his name? Uh, uh, Panda. Burl yeah. Panda. Yeah, yeah. There, was, there was alliteration there, I know. Yeah, it. yeah. Well, as long as I did Murder in the Family, that one keeps keeps coming back. That one doesn't go away, thank God. Mm. I got yeah. That's something that's, that is somewhat uh, gratifying when you write a book and uh, 20 years later, 10 years later, whatever, uh, people still want to read it. And uh, Yeah, and it's interesting to me to go look at those books and say, what was it about this? Is it the crime? Um, was it the way I told it? Is it, uh, uh, was it the heroes? Uh, was uh, Did I do a particularly good job of uh, portraying the... Um, the hero or the villain or, or um, I do like that when books like Monster you know has remained a, a good seller for you know 20 some odd years now um, and, and part of it I mean I think it's a combination of all those things you know the um, the, the story itself the story of the detective who stayed with it the story of other people who stayed with it the victim's family and the you know and just the, the storytelling as a, here's a there, there have been times when I've uh, tried to Try, try to like uh, I'll write a book. And that, was my, that was my my uh, alarm to call you at four o'clock. Like you oh. told me. <laughs> well, we have the time zones differently. Uh, there's there been <laughs> times when I th- there's only only one between me and you, so it should have been really tough. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, been times <laughs> when I've thought that a book was going to be particularly easy to do, and it turned out to be very difficult. Right. Uh, that was with me. That was Fatal Beauty, which I thought was going to be a snap to write. And I almost snapped writing it. In fact, uh, Bakila Hamilton, who was my editor on that book, said, "You're drowning in this manuscript, aren't you?" <laughs> yeah. And I said, "Yeah, yeah I am." I mean, yeah, you do. So it's not, you know, some books you you they come at you and you say, "Oh, it's about this and that and this and that," and it's not that big a deal. I'm working on one now. Um, about the murder of a guy who ran for uh, United Mine Workers president back in 1969 yep. against uh, Tough Tony Boyle. Mm-hmm. And Boyle um, hired some guys to kill him and his family and all that sort of stuff. And basically it kind of started as a, an older true crime 
um, that way. And, but it's uh, they have come to realize that it's so tied up in Appalachia and the whole coal country uh, culture, both the, you know people uh, covering up for it for a while, and then eventually people not covering up for it. And, and you know you have that that. Uh, group that's got the Irish uh, Appalachia people who, you know, uh, honesty is, is an important virtue. Yeah. Um, and so when it came down to it, and uh, uh, that's kind of it's sort of that cultural thing. But that, that book has taken, you know, more than a year, more than it was should have taken. You have somebody uh, writing for you that um, put together a book about a uh, the last lynching. Oh, yeah, that was a good book. <clears throat> oh, yeah, the uh, last mentioning in Kansas. Yeah, right, um, and, and she took the similar approach. Um, she went back to the families and life 40 years prior to start the material, to walk you through right. what brought you to the point where a mob could, could lynch somebody. Yeah, so the next one, book. Uh, under the full moon. Yeah, no, it is. It's very well researched, well written, um, and very interesting. I like, I love books like that. I, I, I you know, our, our book, the um, Coal Country Killing, actually started 350 million years ago when uh, uh, coal swamps were being turned into coal, um, and then it kind of comes forward into uh, how bloody that part of the country was long before European. Uh, got there and people fighting over the land and fighting over resources there and, um, and then you get the, the Scots-Irish moving in and kind of moving into the hollers and then being basically forgotten by the rest of our culture and then the coal people kind of come up and come and ruin the land and, and make these people who were farmers basically into coal miners and and then these people are dying, you know, nine out of ten of them get black lung, and right. nobody does anything about it because they're, they're hillbillies. We don't care about hillbillies. We care about everybody but hillbillies. Yeah. Yeah, there are those that are considered disposable. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're stupid. They talk stupid. They dress funny. They're, you know, they... Um, they're, you know, they're just, why should we, you know, even when, um, 64, when the war on poverty started, that was all aimed at the cities and inner, inner cities, which is fine. I mean, that was obviously necessary, but nobody did anything about Appalachia. Yeah. They said there's two groups now that, uh, discrimination is considered socially acceptable. And that is homeless people and overweight people. Hmm. Well, I, I, I would I would say you can also say almost anything you want to about um, you know Appalachian whites. Yeah, you know they're they're all stupid. They're all racist. They're all um, you know they're, they're all flying Confederate flags. They're all uh, you know this stuff. And I think if you go to Appalachia, you find be surprised who's up there. Um, yeah. You know, and and the sort of cultures they are that you know the media has has portrayed them as a certain way, and, and unfortunately for themselves, they've kind of they kind of allowed some of it to happen. But now you can you can you know you go ahead and say you know call somebody a dumb hillbilly, um, and see if that really probably doesn't raise a, a single red flag in the media. Nope, not at all. 
And, uh, and you know, and that's not to say any any other sort of discrimination or calling is right. It's not, but it should all be wrong. You know, it should all be wrong. But when I hear and, people and talk and about part that. of the, the, the appeal of somebody like Trump is that he'll talk to those people and say, "Oh, you're you're the only people anybody can say anything bad about." And they're like, "Well, yeah, that's true." Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, there's a grain of truth to it. And it aggravates me when people talk about the homeless as if being homeless was some crime of, of intention. Right. Uh, and you don't it just want to work. You're lazy and you don't want to work. Um, has nothing to do with you possibly being mentally ill and has nothing to do with you may be so impoverished that there's no way you can get a shave and buy some clothes so you can go get a job. Has nothing to do with, uh, you know, in, anything else or the way society is structured. It has to do with, you know, well, because they're lazy and they're they're not smart and they're mentally ill and, and, and that stuff. And, you know, overweight people, same way, same thing. You know, if they really wanted to, they could not eat so much. Um, you know, they could, they could eat better food instead of the, the crap they eat that makes them overweight, so... You know, we just we're 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 a society that thinks it knows it all. Yeah. Mm. So I, sh- I should stay away the big uh, from the big bucket of cheese balls in front of me. <laughs> yes, Mark does have a big bucket of cheese balls. In front of me. <laughs> it depends. Yeah, the, you know the two pound bag of red Twizzlers. That's my downfall. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. We have a tub. We actually have a tub. Of uh, cheese balls in front of us. Uh, no, you have, if you have a tub, it's uh, red vines, and those are bad. They're horrible. They should be banned from the planet. Oh, and yeah. you are, love them. You they love are them. Tasty. <laughs> no, they're red strawberry, strawberry Twizzlers. Uh, you know, red uh, vines are, are an abomination. <laughs> uh, is there um, any of your uh, prior material you feel like needs to be revisited? Uh, me, meaning what? Uh, well, you mean, books no, I haven't uh, done or books I would like to redo? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Both. Well, um, probably all of my books. Yeah, I never reread my books. And then the reason is is because I know if I did, I would sit there and go, oh, you know, I should have done this, or oh, I should have done yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're a, um, you know, a writer of any, uh, uh, with any thinking uh, self and, you are constantly trying and hoping to improve. Well, next time I do that, I think I'm going to do, do this a little bit better. I'm going to do that. So yeah, every one of them, I, I'm sure I could revise and do. There's one book I might actually do that with. It's called Love Me to Death. And I have the, uh, um, oh, I think we got the audio rights back on it. Maybe, I'm not sure. I've asked for rights back. I'm not sure we do. But that one I kind of rushed into. It was uh um, it was a trial that was going on. I got access to all this material. Um, I was trying to put it out as quickly on top of the trial as I could. And, and uh, I know for a fact that the, the book is probably uh, 25% longer than it needs to be with the repetitive stuff. And, but sometimes that's just what it is. is um, you know, you're, you're doing it as journalism and you're, you're cranking it out. And, right. and, you know, people will want to see this fairly quickly. So you're... Um, trying to to get it done um it's interesting you say about the 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 length on these books when i was uh under contract to uh, another publisher all the true crime books had to be a hundred thousand words and uh when frank gerardo and i wrote uh a couple books for uh wild blue press another one in the works right now uh we decided you know what we're just going to 
tell the story. And we're going to tell the story conversationally as if you were sitting here either leaning forward in your chair or leaning back in it. Uh, and we're just going to tell it. And however long it is, that's how long it is. And uh, it worked out really well for us, as you know. Uh, and that was such a relief to be able to just to do that, to use the number of words it took to tell the story and tell it well. That's, that's kind of how I did, especially if I have any time at all. Um, I, I mean, almost all books I've ever read could be tightened. You know, I think we all like to, to um, you know, like our words, and we like to go on and on, do three sentences when one or two might have worked and stuff. So I think almost all books could be tightened, um, but I don't, I don't worry about the word count. When I did Lucky Lady, my World War II book, um, there were so many great stories out of those out of the two ships and my father's story and stuff like that. <laughs> I think I turned that thing into 350,000 words. <laughs> and it was, it was contracted for 120. Yeah. Um, and I eventually think I won one out with, like, uh, they went for 220 on it or something along those lines. But there's but, a yeah, thing that's... That was quite the battle. They were, they were not happy with me. And Monster was. Monster is... Uh, a big book. Um, you know, I think that's in uh, probably 175,000, 150,000 range. But, well, I know another yeah, thing that... like, you know, but to me, it, it, it deserved it. And, yeah. you know, and I had people, I had the first, you know, first publisher say, oh, this is too long to do this and do that. And so we went on to the next ones, which were Kensington, um, before Michaela. Um, and they loved it, and they came out and was a New York Times bestseller in two weeks. So, yeah, that's you know, what we like so to hear. So some publishers now are sending out sending out memos. Now that the United States is 125th in literacy in the world. <laughs> yeah, you know, and what we're reading uh, is, you know, is just you know, we'll, we'll go for cheap over quality. I mean it. It drives me nuts. I mean, we have to do it to compete, but, you know, dropping books to 99 cents, and then you get people, you know, complaining about the cost of the book because it's 5.99 on Kindle or it's yeah. 7.89 on print. And, oh, my God, you, you know, your books are so expensive. Like, how are you literate? You know, how many cups of coffee do you get a week? And uh, how much, you know, in a, a book, a $7.89 print book will last you, what, three days, four days? entertainment and, yeah um, but you're willing to go spend that on you know getting an extra beer at the <laughs> or an uh, xbox title yeah Steve, hey listen we're out of time so amazingly enough thank you so we're much and thank you today. for giving burl something to do yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thank you you okay, thanks a lot Steve. thank you very much yeah. for joining right. burl yeah Magic Bat Allen, the deepest of decadence, live in the Light and the Blounge at OutlawRadioLive.com.